and welcome to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. I'm Ryan, aka the Zen Marxist, joined here by Shibby. Thanks again for tuning in. And on today's episode, we're going to be joined by Ria from the Revolutionary Communist Group to talk about Cuba, the Rock Around the Blockade movement, what it is, her time in Cuba, and how everyone listening can help and be a part of that. So kick back, strap in, grab a drink, and listen up. It's not that some people are just too dumb to understand it. I mean, that's complete nonsense, right? It can be taught to anyone. Uh, it is intuitive to some degree, and it's not like an intelligence thing. And, you know, we had some placards, one of them which said the prefactual point that Zionism is racism. You know, it's not just a moral stand, it's a political stand. What you're talking about is the role that Israel plays securing the interests of US and British imperialism in the Middle East. And it would be talking about Iraq or Afghanistan or something. Today, where I am, and I like understand these conflicts that have literally been going on since I was born. It's just like horrifying. It's not. It's not British culture. It's just the world's culture. They love stories. They love this idea that there is this nation that looks like this. I think it's a distraction from the class struggle, to be honest. Welcome to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio, Rio. I'm very happy to have you on here today to discuss your experience with Rock Around Blockade, the Brigade Cuba, and the Solidarity Campaign for the Cuban People for Socialist Cuba, uh, to really hopefully bring our listeners some context into what Cuba is today, hopefully debunk some myths that people have on Cuba, having experience from being there actually helps a lot because you know, often you hear people say, oh, you've never been to Cuba, or I went to holiday on Cuba and I saw this, but you've actually went there to have a really in-depth exploration politically, socially, you know, I guess intellectually, and, you know, I guess it was also a spiritual experience as well to go over to there and see the spirit of humanity trying to bring progress for everybody in their society, which is really a far cry to what we see in you know, capitalist nations where the wealth just goes straight to the top and then we're just poor as shit at the bottom. So thank you very much for being on the show. And Ria, this is actually your a first official time on the show because you've been on the show on an earlier episode unofficially. This was on our HSB episode where we occupied HSBC in town. That was an awesome day. So listeners have, have actually heard your voice before. If if they do recognise it, that's where it's from. So welcome, we are happy to have you on. Oh yeah, that was great. The HSBC occupation, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, thank <laughs> you very much for having me. I really look forward to the episode. I'm really looking forward to it too and before we go into your experience on your Brigade of Cuba I think it's definitely important to go into the history in Cuba and just bring out some of the most significant parts in Cuba's history that really shows people where we're coming from here, how it got to where it is today, why it's a socialist country, why there was a revolution and why we've supported today. Where we're transitioning to, you know, maybe not literally in every ideal sense but at least on on a political social sense i'm just going to go into the history now so to give some historical background as to what made cuba to, as it is today we're probably best starting from when it was first known to western colonizers when it was first introduced into their history because before it was found by spanish colonialists and before it was found by you know western colonial civilization it didn't exist 
because they didn't know that it existed. So Cuba in its early days was a rich land in the eyes of the colonizers, but of course there was like inhabitants, natives living there. They of course got made into slaves to grow sugar, and I think it was the Spanish who was there first. You know, they ma- literally made the population at this point in, into slaves because Cuba was an extremely rich, fertile land. It was, it's renowned for its sugar plantation. You know, colonialism doesn't go over there to, like, trade with these people. What it did was cause slavery in Cuba. It's like slavery in Cuba is associated with a labour demand to support the sugarcane plantations. If we're going back way when, it existed on the territory of the island in Cuba from the 16th century until it was abolished by royal decree on October the 7th, 1886. So they say, anyway, the first organised slave in Cuba was introduced by the Spanish colonialists to attack and enslave the island's indigenous people. At every single opportunity, these colonialists from Europe enslaved the indigenous population on a grand scale to the point where Cuba's original population was eventually like destroyed completely. Cuba's original population didn't exist and this was entirely due to lethal forced labor over the course from like the 1500s to early 1900s and beyond if you know slavery just exists in, in a different like state which we'll mention. But over the 1500s, the colonialists were like in need for new slaves to uphold their reign and their production. So over a million African slaves were brought to Cuba as part of the Atlantic slave trade. Cuba did not end its participation in the slave trade until 1867 because Eventually, the slaves grew to outnumber the European Cubans, colonial occupants. So a large portion of the Cubans actually descended from these African slaves. Like they say, you know, as many as 65% of the population. So just to touch on that early slavery, you you were at this uh, meeting, wasn't you, Ria, with Professor Ronaldo Funes Monzot, and he went into Cuba and, and just on the, the whole grand scale of just how many slaves were actually on Cuba and, and how underappreciated it is that Cuba was like such a slave colony. They said the Haitians known for its slave colony and, and being, you know, perhaps the biggest slave colony, but, you know, the professor shown us the Cuba slave trade dwarfed out of Haiti. Um, you, you can probably remember more details from that. Yeah, I bet you've got notes stashed somewhere from that meeting. I really wish that I'd written some more down now. Is this the meeting with um, Ronaldo? Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I actually got barely any notes from that. I was really annoyed because I was chairing it. So I didn't bring my notebook with me to the front and then he was going to send around his presentation afterwards, but I never got it. So you, you've probably got more notes than me from that, but it was brilliant. Wasn't it? His presentation. Yeah, like I say, I really wish that I'd retained every single bit of information that he'd given us because it was super crucial, super important, and it's hard to find sources of information on the history of Cuba like that anywhere. You know, he he was Cuban himself, wasn't he? So I think he's got books out, hasn't he? So people should definitely go and buy Professor Ronaldo Funes Monzote. They should go and buy his books. I'll definitely include that in the show notes because it talks about environmentalism in Cuba as well as its history and slave trade. So 
you know, we'll, we'll support him in that way because we appreciate him coming out to Liverpool, you, you know, doing such a great presentation for us. And, and thank you, Ria, for chairing that meeting. Maybe you didn't get as many notes as you'd like to, but, you know, the consequence was it was an extremely well-chaired meeting, organised meeting. And again, to the comrades out in the RCG, thank you for your participation in that too. Yay, thank you. <laughs> All good, thank you. So that was Slavey in Cuba. We talk about the end of slavery, but slavery doesn't really end. Technically, Cuba was under Spanish colonial rule until 1898, um, when the US then took over. But the US imperialism had controlled Cuba for long before that. Like Helen, Dr. Helen Yaffe, who's a member of uh, the Revolutionary Communist Group, and she's published a few books on Cuba. She's got this incredible one, Che Guevara, The Economics of Revolution, where she talks about this exact topic in the first chapter and about how, so Cuba's technically under Spanish colonial rule, but by the 1870s, the vast mass of Cuban sugar, like 80% of Cuban sugar was going to the United States. The United States owned like transportation and railway long before it had technical control over it. And what this meant that Cuba was literally developed to be a sugar colony. It was developed to supply the sugar for imperialist countries. And what that meant within Cuba is that you had tens of thousands of workers working in the sugar industry who were only employed for seasonally for the sugar seasons. And in between then, they were just left. So Helen makes a point in the book that poverty and unemployment and underemployment, purposefully underemploying people. So you've got this whole reserve army of labor um, so you can continue paying people lower and lower wages. They were inherent aspects of Cuba and it was just kept in this state of underdevelopment. That is just a very, an important part of Cuba's history, the sugar industry and the way that US imperialism controlled the economy long before 1898 when it, de facto control. Yes, needs to be said. As technology in the material world develops, time moves forward. This is materialism. So we're going on to times where slavery was really co-opted by the Banana Republic at the time, which had gone over Latin America and forced this kind of capitalist wage slavery. In fact, they did maintain slavery. So those those figures I gave you about slavery ending, they're probably not all accurate with every single place within Latin America. But, you know, the point I'm making is these Banana Republics turned into the United Fruit Company. The United Fruit Company today exists in the same way that there's these banana republics. It, they exist in pretty much well, the same way. Well, it literally comes from that, right? Like the term banana republic comes from that banana company, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it was a banana company. We've done an episode earlier on where we, I discuss it with Garrett and we talk about how capitalists have gone over there and forced these people to... Slave for them, does, uh, I mean, uh, the, this point that I'm saying about slavery ended, and I'm going back to it all the time because it's just a different form of slavery. And, and I use the term slavery now, even though it's not literally the exact same slavery where you get whipped and, and all tied up and that. But I, I use that as a kind of poetic sense because 
you know, in all philosophical sense, I guess it is slavery and, you know, the United Fruit Company that exists today. Instead of being brutally about bananas, they want oranges, they want apples, they, they want pears. So now they've just changed their names to a United Fruit yeah, Company. Yeah, I mean, it's a different type for sure, right? Like chattel slavery is where you literally own people. And, um, you know, they're not, people are, are not, property in that they're you know bought and sold on open slave markets but it's that old adage about you know if, if stealing a hundred percent of someone's labor is slavery at what percentage is it no longer classed as slavery right because anyone who understands you know the labor theory of value knows that no uh worker under capitalism gets a hundred percent of what they produce right that's surplus value that's extracted that goes towards the capitalist right so they are in effect that's what wage theft is right they're stealing something from you that you are producing that you do not receive the benefits of if one man earns a dollar he did not work for then another man worked for a dollar that he did not get right that's it. I mean, what, what I just read about slavery there, that was written by some liberal who's looking at history through the lens of capitalism. And we have to obviously, you know, look at it from a different ideological standpoint to, uh, again, make context of this history. It's also just the case that uh, capitalism was literally built off of slavery. Like, in the most literal sense, capitalism would not have been possible without slavery as a system to support it, right? You can you can trace it all the way back. You can go through the sort of days of the British Empire, through the Industrial Revolution, through the colonization of the Global South, right? I mean, this is a economic system that was literally... It, it, was birthed into the world dripping in the blood of the uh, of the global south yeah and just to articulate that point further at this point in time and as we're talking about the history of cuba capitalism as you've described it is not the same everywhere it's it's at one stage in you know industrial nations and then you've got these impoverished deprived nations victims of imperialism elsewhere who aren't as materially developed um so of course capitalism is behaving in a more primitive form almost like feudalism where you've got literal peasants rather than say you know workers as, as you'd have in the in the uk they're different but they're also still victims of the same power process and the same class structure you know globalization imperialism however you want to say it there have always been stages to capitalism right no one thinks that it's exactly the same in the 1600s as it is today right you can and all serious people who have written on theory on this issue have spoke about this right like lenin even wrote a book right imperialism being the highest stage of capitalism right capitalism is essentially this beast that requires new markets to exploit or greater detail of exploitation of the markets that they currently have uh, you, you it goes all the way through you know you have in the industrial version of capitalism which is very different to the stage of monopoly capitalism right and the version that we see today is kind of it's it's finance capitalism and it's being merged ever more increasingly with this state of sort of constant surveillance capitalism right you now have the state with the utmost surveillance powers imaginable and this sort of techno industrial complex where all those forces are sort of combining to create the actual uh, conditions that capitalism are taking place in this century i suppose yeah most definitely even beyond imagination i'm guessing but i'd like to go back into cuba now because 
what we've just described here is a process where very few people are getting wealthy to the highest possibility the rest are only getting you know bare minimum it was said by Che Guevara that he was told during the Cuban revolution that a peasant um, a peasant and his father had been working on land for something like four years work he literally earned not even a bean he, I mean, he worked the land, he grew corn for the landlord, and then after four years of being fed up, not earning a, a penny, he'd ask the landlord, you know, where, where's my money? I've worked for four years, when are we getting paid? The landlord gave him, like, something like 10 to $20 and then told him to get the fuck off his land, and then his, his father, he himself had to leave the land, you know, absolutely poor as shit after working four years for 20 fucking dollars and where did they end up they ended up in the arms of the, the cuban revolution so i'd like to go into now a, a more recent period of history where we have to lead on to you know with this frustration this class antagonisms building up the contradictions becoming too high uh, so this is where fidel castro comes into it because it's where the 26th of july brigade came into it we recognize this extraction of resources minerals the exploitation of labor and the, the very little money that is going in and how that wealth is being redistributed within Cuba, within the exploited colony. We recognize this as a phenomena that we call a class-structured society. So this distribution, this small distribution of the actual wealth that the land is being created and then being distributed to a very few population, that phenomenon is a class-structured society. And we have to recognize that this is universal in, around the whole globe. And that's obviously what was happening to Cuba and, and this is something that you know Karl Marx talks about this is why people are socialists it's why people are communists and this is why we look at you know capital and stu study capital because all these things all these instances where look at Cuba look at the way that's a banana public that's just how it is no that's how capitalism and you know the wealth and resources and and, and colonialism uh, as you mentioned is you know just applied everywhere so um, Shibby, I forgot it? to say as what well, can I quickly like add something on, in, but it was from the last bit. I just feel like I didn't make clear how industry was owned by the United States, why that mattered so much is because it meant that then all the profit made from that sugar was going back to the United States and developing the United States and lining the pockets of capitalists and corporations in the US, like all that money all those resources were being stolen from Cuba, all the money from their production and from their sale was being taken out of Cuba, which is what led to Cuba, as in so many other of the so-called underdeveloped countries, that's how they become underdeveloped. It's not that they're poor, um, they're very rich countries, it's that their wealth, their resources and their wealth are stolen to build the imperialist countries. Sorry, I just forgot to, I feel like it didn't make clear how it led to underdevelopment, so I just wanted to add that in. Awesome. Yeah, thank you very much. Again, I appreciate that. That's very helpful for the listeners. So what the hell do you do about it? <laughs> Did the people just stand back and let this happen? No. This is where... You know, moving on, Fidel Castro comes into it. The 26th of July brigade came into it. This is where the masses revolt. The masses can't literally just let this carry on anymore. 
Fidel, the 26th of July Brigade, the adamant, and he wants to liberate the poor masses from this Western imperialism, and that meant going to war with its government, this government dictated by Batista, this US puppet, you know, installed by the United States to, you know, help proliferate this system which you just described. So Fidel ended up in jail for a revolutionary activity, but the people demanded that he was released. They had that much activity that Fidel was actually re- released. Fidel had support from the people that he was released from jail for revolutionary activity. This is before the Cuban Revolution. He was released, and he was, of course, not intimidated for being a political prisoner, but he was empowered by the support that he had from the Cuban people. And so in his self-determined desire to go to Mexico and recruit an army to invade Batista's island and liberate the people. Che Guevara happened to be one of these people who in his younger years travelled the entire way around Latin America pretty much on the back of his mate's uh, motorbike. So Che Guevara when he was younger because of this trip he met all kinds of people he saw the most deprived poor lives like the insane things people have to do like mining for export again the the same things going on in Cuba that happening all around Latin America. He sees this when he literally travels around Latin America. He sees, you know, the just the, the peasantry who are lucky to make the smallest amounts just to barely survive if they're lucky to get work from a landlord or a corporation anywhere where, again, all these resources that they do mine from these inherently rich countries are then made impoverished because of, of US imperialism. Western imperialism. So Che Guevara turned his back on being a doctor after witnessing all this poverty and desperation, after standing on top of Machu Picchu, an ancient wonder built on a mountaintop from an ancient civilization, like long before electricity, like wondering like how the fuck have we let the world come to this? What's happened to civilization? How can we not build wonders like this that are purely to benefit the people ourselves and then let this let how is there so much suffering? How is there so much poverty? Like you know, it, it really had him wondering and uh, that's when eventually he, he went to Mexico and joined another 81 fighters on the Grama yacht that was used to transport the fighters to basically begin the Cuban Revolution in November 56 for the purpose of overthrowing the regime of Batista. They travelled there on a 60-foot diesel-powered cruiser built in 1943. 82 of them went on this boat to literally try and liberate an island that was backed by the United States, 82 of them, on a boat that was only made to accommodate 12 people. So this is why we really, among other things, look to Fidel, look to Che and the other revolutionaries. They succeeded in their goal to liberate the Cuban people. They pushed Batista's regime out of Cuba. They pushed imperialism out of Cuba with the help of the people after defeating Batista's army. Uh, Batista, of course, fled to Florida, I think, with all of Cuba's wealth, all its gold, lived a comfortable life in the United States because that was basically his puppet master. Whilst he left Cuba poor, that was obviously gold that's crucial to the economy. But Batista leaving Cuba, it did really leave the revolutionaries able to cure the sickness, the malnourishment, the child mortality, the parasites from poverty and the other decrepit conditions that they were living under previously. The quality of life improved for everybody on Cuba after the revolution. 
there were no more slaves to capitalist exploitation from any landlord or corporation. People could get healthcare, people could get housing. How did the US respond? By blockading for over 60 years this tiny island from trading with other nations purely because they were socialist and they wanted to put an end to this suffering which we see pretty much everywhere else in the world and which is still prominent to this day by many banana republics in, in, in Latin America today. So that's basically a, a brief summary of, of Cuba. You know, I'm no expert on the situation, but I think that we've done a decent job just to show some context to the history. The purpose of that is to give context to Cuba and its revolution. So we are grateful to have you here today, but because often when you talk about Cuba and how it is today, how they've managed the revolution, how socialism is the transition towards communism, they look at the socialist revolution in Cuba and... You know, they've, they've got their own criticisms that's being fed by bourgeois mass media. And if you do try and defend Cuba today, you're often confronted with, well, you no, know, that you're just listening to propaganda. You've never been to Cuba yourself. My, my grandparents come from Cuba is another one you see, you know, online all the time as if everybody's grandparents come from Cuba or something. You're here, you've been to Cuba, you can really debunk some of these things and you traveled there with rock around the blockade we're grateful to have you on to basically talk about rock around the blockade that solidarity campaign um, and also give some of your own you know opinion on cuba from your own experience so also good all, job with the history not... sorry i forgot to say i didn't know when to say but um i think that was a, a good overview of the history yeah thanks so we're here again, welcome to the show in this official capacity. You know, as always, we have an introduction for people who come onto the show just to give our listeners a, a sense of your political tendencies. It is, you know, a political podcast after all, just to give any of your background that you'd be comfortable sharing with, any organisations you work with. You know, it really helps give our listeners an idea of who we're speaking to here. We are speaking to a real person and, you know, you're definitely interesting. I think all the work that you do is great. So if you could just share anything about your background, that would be really great for us. Thank you. Yeah, so my name is Ria. I'm from the Revolutionary Communist Group. And like you just said, Shibi, our campaign in um, in solidarity with Socialist Cuba, Rock Around the Blockade, um, and also contribute to our newspaper, which is called Fight Racism, Fight Imperialism, um, that we've been publishing since 1979. Yeah, so I don't know whether you're comfortable with me saying this, but you're from Liverpool. Can you just introduce Liverpool, FRFI, and, and a strike Merseyside, please? Yeah, of course. Um, so I live in Liverpool, so I'm part of the RCG um, Liverpool, and we have been working with uh, we've been working within the environmental movement. So within Liverpool, we've been working with a group called Earthstrike Merseyside, who are an anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist climate action group. Awesome! So you heard that, folks. We've got two people from Liverpool on this podcast. You know, there's organising from environmentalism, from anti-imperialism. You know, we're just people there who support the people who support the environment. If you're a listener from Liverpool and you do want to get involved in politics, please 
feel free to message myself on the RCG. Uh, Liverpool will have some details uh, again in the show notes. If you, if you do want to get involved, just message again, message anybody, and we'll definitely you know sort something out and then hopefully do something in the future because we do need support. We also do do Zoom calls as well, isn't these so people can get involved in them. You don't necessarily have to be from Liverpool for them, but again, if you are interested in you know politics or learning or you just want to you know ask questions about these things we're here as well we've got some um open meetings coming up that people can just get involved with online via zoom so the next one that we've got is called imperialism the poisonous roots of racism which is gonna be looking at what exactly what the title said how imperialism um are the roots of racism and we've also got a film festival coming up a revolutionary film festival where we've got four different films the first one is um black panthers the vanguard of the revolution and the subsequent ones look at palestine they look at uh, environmental destruction anti-imperialism and the role of women in revolution so yeah more information about the both the film festival and the open meeting on racism can be found on our facebook which is if you just search liverpool frfi um you'll find them there and it would be great to to have people come along and just get involved in in the discussions most definitely thank you okay so let's get into it for me and i'm sure you know anybody who knows who rock around the blockade is we it's Definitely really important to raise awareness and solidarity for Rock Around the Blockade and their historic solidarity campaigns with Socialist Cuba. I've mingled with the RCG for for some time, so I've got like a basic rudimentary understanding of what the of Rock Around the Blockade is and what the brigades are, but you know, you yourself have been a participant in that. You've been to Cuba, you're a lot more qualified to give us and our listeners a much better understanding of what it entails being a brigadier. So I guess a first question to start off on would quite simply be, what is Rock Around the Blockade? What's its goal, its purpose, its legacy? Okay, the purpose of Rock Around the Blockade is to show people what the reality of socialism is and, like, the outstanding gains that revolutionary Cuba has made, they have made because they're socialist. And we also exist because of what you were just saying, which is to counter the imperialist media offensive against Cuba, um, but not only Cuba, for all revolutionary movements across Latin America. Am I okay to say a bit about the history of RATB? Yeah, please do. Okay, so um, it was... RATB was set up by the RCG in the 1990s, in 1995, um, which was in the middle of what is known as the special period. That is, That was a period of, of real economic difficulty in Cuba after the collapse of the socialist bloc. Um, after the collapse of the socialist bloc, Cuba lost up to 80% of its trade. And at the same time, as Shibi mentioned, it was still being blockaded, as it's still being blockaded today, by the largest imperialist power in the world, the the United States. And that illegal and genocidal blockade cost Cuba, cost Cuba still, 
an average of $12 million every single day. Um, so because of those reasons, Cuba was in economic difficulty and Rock Around the Blockade was set up to give political solidarity to Cuba uh, in that context. And because of the blockade, Cuba is unable to purchase, um, well, it's unable to purchase a lot of things, including like life-saving medicines, but also items that relate to culture and recreation. So our brigades have always brought material aid for Cuban youth. We've brought like sound systems, musical instruments, sport equipment, and bringing that over is a political act because it's um, it's showing that we don't accept the blockade against Cuba. It's, it's also important that material aid because we don't pay for it. We don't buy that aid and the, that equipment. We fundraise for them. So the material aid that we bring over is being paid for by people in Britain, just ordinary people who are supporting socialist Cuba. Beautiful. Um, another important aspect of the brigade is actually when we come back from the brigade. So when comrades return to Britain, we hold meetings all over the country to report about what we've seen and what we've experienced to try and raise the consciousness of what socialist Cuba has achieved. And yeah, just how the socialist system works in practice. I also wanted to mention as well, so aside from the brigades, we do, we are active outside of them. So like Shibi mentioned, we've organized speaking tours of Cubans coming to Britain. The last one was last year with Ronaldo, who should be spoke about, but they've also included the revolutionary Orlando Borrego, who was a close comrade of, of Che Guevara. We've had a few campaigns uh, as well, including a campaign calling for the release of the Cuban Five when they were still imprisoned within the US, and a campaign against Bacardi. Um, Bacardi, in case people don't know, is controlled from Miami by forces who are hostile to the revolution, who have actively tried to overthrow the revolution. But yeah, you can find more about those campaigns on our website, which is ratb.org.uk. Another thing I want to say, actually, is I know I've said this before in previous episodes, but I just want to like continually say it about um, the the reframing around the issue of um, sanctions in that it actually is an act of war. And for some reason, people don't think of it that way. For some reason, people can't contemplate something other than, you know, a literal military force being an act of war. But when you are sanctioning a country and stopping, you know, necessary important supplies from reaching the shores, you know, people die as a result of that. And that is an act of war. But for some reason, people don't don't think of it as such. So I, I really do want to just continually put that out there as that being an act of war. Yeah, definitely. And when the Cuban blockade was implemented, like it came after the US had tried to invade Cuba militarily after they'd committed these acts of terror terrorism against Cuba. And when they saw that they those attacks weren't enough to overthrow the revolution, they regrouped and was like, okay, we'll use economic sanctions to try and economically strangle the the Cuban people into submission. And for 60 years it hasn't worked. But um, the UN, what is it called? The UN Convention, the UN Geneva Convention, I think it's called, um, mm -hmm. outlines that these 
not these sanctions in particular, but sanctions that have been brought in um, with the intent to hurt or kill people, which these sanctions, they're not even sanctions, it's blockade against Cuba. Um, that is why they were brought in and the, the government and CIA documents show that. And the convention says that if they are brought in for those reasons, then that is an act of genocide. So that's why this, this blockade against Cuba is a genocidal act and, and is illegal um, under international law. But of course, when you're the largest imperialist country in the world, you can basically do whatever you want without facing um, backlash. I mean, and you also control the, you know, largest media conglomerations on the face of the earth. So you make sure that people don't think of them as, uh, you know, genocidal acts, acts of war. You know, you make sure that that information doesn't get out to people and people think about that issue in the way that you want them to think about that issue and uh, no other way. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> genocidal acts, acts of war, very descriptive. And yet this is something that is not poetic. This is what it is. Thank you both for bringing that out for our listeners and myself there. This is definitely how people should go away with an understanding of what an economic blockade is. And again, just to show solidarity with all of the comrades out there, you know, we're looking at Iran, who, of course, have got this from having a communist manifesto back in the day. You know, the DPRK, Vietnam, all of these are victims from the same tactic, the same acts of war, the same genocide. So just to respond to, to you there, Ria, it, it really is great just to show you literally rocking around the blockade, uh, you know, bringing donations like sound systems and, you know, saying that this is a political act. It really is because it's like saying, well, I'm sorry, there's no other way to say it, but say, you know, fuck your blockade. We're just going to donate to the people. We're going to actually physically give it to them. We're not even going to trade it with them. We're going to give it to them. It really just shows how much love and solidarity there is there for the Cubans who are not just, you know, like us and like others protesting or supporting socialism in a day-to-day life. The Cuban people are literally living it. They're breathing it day in, day out. They've gone from what you said, the special period to periods where they've really been scratching around for some fucking food because of these blockades, this genocidal act, and they've they've got to the point where they are today through insane odds, through insane oppression. So, you know, going out there and literally giving them things that just, you know, makes life, you know, a little bit fucking better, as well as to go home with your experience to share with, with you know, the, the sights and, that you've seen, the humanity that you've seen, the experiences, the, the good, the bad of, of the Cuban revolution. You know, this is, again, why why I'm so desperate to, to platform this and why it's, it's important to speak out for this and to give support for, you know, the RCG rock around the blockade uh, because, you know, we're... These are really important sources of information. So we'll go more into the experience you had there to give more context into what what Cuba looks like today. So thank you very much for for those answers there. With that background, you know, well said of Rock Around the Blockade as an organisation, let's move on to the actual brigade now and your participation in it. 
could you just please expand on your last answer to more broadly depict what the brigades to Cuba are? Like, you know, what do they involve? You know, how did you get there? How long was you in Cuba for? What, what did your routine look like out there? And just, just any de- details like that, you know, so we can, you know, pick those details out and maybe have a discussion over, you know, your experience there. Yeah, cool. So the brigades... The one that I went on last year was the 14th Solidarity Brigade that Rock Around the Blockade has sent to Cuba. And I know that the programs for the previous ones have varied. For example, some uh, brigades would stay outside of Havana, um, some would stay on farms. But the one that I was on, we, so yeah, it was last year, we went for two weeks and we stayed in Havana for those two weeks at a hostel from the UJC. The UJC is the youth wing of the Communist Party. And throughout our stay, we had two translators from the UJC who stayed with us and traveled with us to translate the meetings for for those of us that don't speak Spanish. So every day there were three or four different meetings. Like it was a busy schedule, not gonna lie. It was like, oh my god, <laughs> it was really intense, but obviously so worth it. Yeah. And yeah, there was just such a huge range of people and organizations that we met. We met with farmers, with media and uh, newspaper organizations, economists, teachers, children, students elderly people, women's organizations, um, LGBT organizations, state officials, communist party members. It was incredible, like the range of different people that that we got to meet with. Um, so for most of the meetings, we would travel to them, to their buildings um, or meeting places. And so we got tours of a lot of the organizations and institutions and schools. We did a bit of work on on a farm as well, but some of the meetings would take place in the hostel in one of the meeting rooms. Um, But yeah, so it, it was a really busy schedule, but there were a lot of incredibly informative meetings. Wow. Anything you want to add on there, Ryan? Um... I don't think so. I would have loved to have been there, but unfortunately we weren't, so I can't really speak about what it was like on the ground, unfortunately. Have you been to Cuba? I know you I haven't. haven't. Cuba. Oh. I would have loved, I would love to. Thank you very much for that answer. That really just shows the extent of the planning that goes into, you know, walk around the blockade. This isn't something that sounds like a holiday, although it I would have loved it more than a holiday, more than going over there, back, sitting yeah. back on a flipping chair, getting a tan. Uh, it's definitely, you know, better than a holiday. Um, but, uh, you know, I only I only mentioned that because, I, as you described, you're meeting all kinds of people. You're meeting people within politics. You're meeting youth people. You're meeting LGTB, you, you know, communities. You're, you're meeting teachers, students. You're meeting pretty much the face of you know, society, different components within Cuban society. So, yeah, I, I can really imagine that it's extremely busy. It reminds me of something like an astronaut said on the International Space Station where every 10 minutes is planned out. It's a strict routine. Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah, uh, because, of course, you're somewhere which is 
it's taken a lot of goddamn planning, uh, you know, to get you over there. You're there for a short for a short time, but that learning that you can achieve, um, it, it's only temporary. You can't literally live there just like you can't live in space. But so you have to really plan out and make the most out of you know every second of, of every goddamn day because it's 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 that important. It, it's that valuable of an experience. Um, you also, you know, really want to get the most out of that that you can. That that's that's awesome. There's there's a question I'd like to ask you there. So you've went over there. You've just just to basically solidify what you're telling us before I go into some of the details of, of what you've seen actually on the ground. Isn't there any way that you know you going over there, despite you having translators and speaking to all of these people? Couldn't there be any kind of like Truman Show situation where everything's planned out so they're just making it look nice, they're making it look good. Uh, people are just putting on a, a show for these, you know, British travellers. Um, just like, you know, people imagine in, in the DPRK where everybody's an actor, they're just putting a show on for the tourists that like, you know, the DPRK is some great place to live. Couldn't every single person everywhere you went to over those two weeks just be putting on some kind of pants? To mind for years did you get that kind of impression <laughs> do you know what yeah like people actually ask that but not sarcastically or like not not jokingly at all and it's just like imagine if an entire country existed purely to to trick foreign people like it's not as if they're they're trying to construct an entire society build socialism across the whole of the country um, it's not as if they're like they've got all these problems that they're trying to overcome, and it's not like they they've got education and healthcare. It's just I feel like when people say that they're so detached from that they, they've just been so sucked in by imperialist propaganda and thinking of these these places as being oh I don't know the words of just crazy dystopias run by some tyrants. Yeah, yeah, and. Like these are normal people. These are real people, and actually, that's what I found um, surprising when I went to Cuba because that is the perception that you have that everything is controlled. There's no freedom of speech. There's just really no freedom at all. Everything um, is geared towards you know impressing foreigners, and it's so far from the truth. Like when you go there, what what I was so shocked by was just how normal it is and how normal everybody is, and like we would just go off wandering by ourselves it's not like we were under you know constant surveillance we could talk to anyone we talked i spoke to a man who was um who had criticisms of the government and wasn't particularly in support of the revolution he was um the only one that i spoke to out of you know like tens and tens and tens of people but yeah the the idea that it's just a show that people are putting on is ludicrous as if they aren't real people with real lives constructing socialism that they've got enough on their plates to to get 11 and a half million people to pretend that they're living a life that they're not. Brian? Yeah, I mean, it's also just a really strange view that everything is sort of, um, everything has to be either for or from the viewpoint of the colonial countries, right? So, like, even that viewpoint of, like, everything there is, um, you know, a theatre stage, essentially, to suit the colonial powers, right? It has to be about us. Everything they do has to be to 
it has to be about us. They're trying to trick us. They're doing this for us, right? It's this weird sort of egotistical view that, that everything that they do has to either be to benefit or afflict us in one way or another. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's some funny points there, yeah, but you know, when it, when it comes to everybody putting on some kind of show for the visitors, I'd just like to to really throw that the other way around. I think that, you know, whereas the Cubans aren't putting on, on any kind of show for, you, you know, you as visitors, I do think that, you know, the people in Western nations are always kind of putting on some kind of show because the people in the West have always got some kind of necessary machismo and egotism where they're constantly trying to look their best. They're, they're constantly trying to... Uh, you know, trying to look, you know, wh whatever makes them look the most popular, whatever makes them look the most trendy. Whereas, like, I think that the Cuban people, from what, what I've learned, they're kind of much more open and honest about things. Like, for example, there's no there's no Cubans out there who are simply trying to get as much social validation through all of the social media platforms, through Instagram, um, you know, trying to be as popular as they can to... You, you know, find find their self value and worth. I think Cubans are a lot more honest with themselves. Like a, I'm, I'm sure I've heard, but also something tell me that you know the Cubans are much more honest. Like if they're fat or somebody's fat, they're just kind of like you know you're fat. Like I'm fat. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah, people over here, the the so so egotist driven and people in america they're constantly trying to be like famous they they want to be famous they want to be actors they literally want to live their lives uh, like uh, as some kind of act like it's not real all of, all of this like consumerism consumerism all of your material possessions don't make you um, any kind of better person so i think that people are saying you could be going over there and they're putting on some kind of show well you know, everybody's trying to show off over here constantly because the, their ego is dependent on it. I think that, you know, the perception of, of like, being a, an egotistic, machismic individual is different. Yeah. No, no that might not make that much of a sense, but I, I don't know. That's something I've just thought about and considered. No, I mean, there's real theoretical basis to that right like i mean you can read anything coming out of the frankfurt school through adorno right the whole culture industry thing right i mean most of social media generally is formative right i mean this is what the culture industry is you have the culture industry is not what some people think as like the relationship between people within a society like this right so when you have things like social media that doesn't exist to depict the reality of people's lives it exists to yeah. uh, depict the version of their life that they wish to see, right? Because no one ever puts anything, for the most part, negative up there, right? People are always trying to present the best possible version of themselves, and it's always the good things, happy times, right? And that that is the role yeah. that that plays within within the culture industry. Yeah, boss, thanks for that. Could I just say something quickly, Shibiov? Um, just what you were saying is so true, like how honest the cuban people are like they just go oh you yeah you're you the fat one or me the fat one or you the one with the crooked teeth like whatever it is and it's not an insult it's just like stating the fact and um what i what i thought was really refreshing to see is you just see all these people going around with their crop tops and like their big bellies hanging out and they couldn't care less like it, it's not something that <laughs> their minds and that's so marked from from 
like British society, West capitalist societies um, in the ways that you were talking about before. Yeah, and as Ryan brought out, it is all conformity. It is all to manipulate our spending habits to benefit the capitalist mode of production. And of course, these insecurities that are necessary to benefit the capitalists and, you know, make people use Instagram, Facebook and whatnot, uh, you know, dependent on social validation. It just doesn't exist in socialist Cuba. It's always good to have that support there because obviously, like, until I say something and, and like, you know, it's supported, I don't know whether I'm just making things up, so thank you for that. Well, let's move on now. So we've had some details about the structure and your involvement in the brigade. So hopefully that's, you know, a lot more better understood there for the listeners. Let's move on now to more of your personal experiences. Like, what were you expecting before you went over there? And as such, like, what were your biggest surprises? Uh, so let's talk about some positive things that you saw over there that surprised you. What were some negative things? Uh, we could have some dialogue over them and then maybe go on to, like, your personal favourite highlights and your memories, you know, just some interesting interactions that you had over there with, with the different kinds of population would be awesome to hear about so what did that look like in terms of what to expect like I was saying before like I just didn't know what to expect at all but and then was just so surprised at actually just how normal everything is and people just going about their day but what was really really impressive and what stayed with me was how how conscious the Cuban people were um, like every so we went on a visit to a CDR. CDR is a committee for the defense of the revolution. And they're like neighborhood organizing committees. So say, um, I don't know, like your street and the street next to you, you'd be organized together into a CDR. Um, so the CDRs, there's 9 million Cubans who are organized into them. Um, so they are proper people's power, grassroots, organizing, making decisions about their lives. And when we went to the CDR, they threw us a little street party. It was really lovely. Uh, and there were, there were children and teenagers, social workers, musicians, um, magicians. There was a young guy there who wanted to be a magician. So he was doing his magic tricks. Communist party members, um, elderly people, basically people from all fabrics of society um, and everyone that you spoke to had this level of consciousness, you know, from whatever job, whatever age, they comprehended the revolutionary struggle, um, why they're anti-imperialist, why they're socialist, why that needs to be ma maintained and understanding that socialism is this continuous process of which they are all agents of, they are part of. Uh, that's the biggest thing that I took from it, just the level of revolutionary consciousness that exists among the people. And that, that doesn't just happen. Like that, how, where we live now in Britain, the revolutionary consciousness is so low and it's obviously purposefully kept low and perpetuated through um, structurally and, you know, through media and whatnot. So in Cuba, to get to this stage now of revolutionary consciousness, they've done that through the the way that they organize and the kind of democracy that exists there where Cuban people are part of debates and discussions around economic policy, around social policy, new laws. They are included in making the decisions uh, through from the highest level to the lowest level. 
Um, and through that process of that, that democratic process of real participatory democracy, uh, they've, they've got this level of revolutionary consciousness that is just amazing. Awesome. What was CDR? What does that stand for? That stands for a Committee for the Defence of the Revolution. Ah, cool. And there's, what, nine million people, did you say, involved in that? Yeah, nine million. And when you think that the Cuban population is, there's 11.5 million, like it's the vast, vast majority of Cuban people. And the CDRs make local decisions. So that is the vast majority of Cuban people making and influencing decisions about their lives every single day about how they should live and how they should organize so it's really revolutionary yeah most definitely you mentioned people's power there and you're absolutely correct there because just in contrast as of january 2020 the labor party had 580,000 registered members and they're considered people's party in this country the tories even the Tories have got a membership of 191,000. So put together, you've still got in this country with, with the main you know, political parties, you've still got less than a million people. Um, so as you, as you mentioned, the Cuba's pop- population, we're obviously a, a, a lot more. So it really is people power. The people are involved in politics. The, the people are involved in political parties because they believe in them, because it goes somewhere, gets them somewhere. Their voices are heard. If if it was true in this country that people could be involved in political parties, then, you know, Labour, the Conservatives would have a lot more members. But, you know, people don't believe in that bourgeois electoral policy yeah. bullshit. Do you know, can I say a bit more on that, on the democracy side of it? Yeah, um, just as an example of like how truly involved the Cuban people are, they, the Cuban constitution was updated last year, but before it was updated, they, like six months prior, a draft constitution was sent round to, was made accessible to every person who lives in Cuba. And then what followed was months of debate and discussion around the proposals. And there were over 8 million Cubans took part in those discussions in over 133,000 meetings up and down the country. Um, and the feedback that was given at these meetings, like people took part in their workplaces, in their CDRs, through their unions. The response that they got, every criticism or agreement or suggested change or addition they were all logged into a central database and analyzed and categorized then the constitutional draft was revisited and 68 percent of proposals were modified and proposals were removed and proposals were added but completely based on the will of the cuban people and that type of democracy that and you know that that's uh, that's just one example of so many. And that's so alien to us here where our concept of democracy is going out to vote for one or other racist imperialist party, you know, with the illusion that we've got a choice. But yeah, for Cuba, it's a continual process of engagement and participation, which is just so, it's so hard for people here to understand because of, because of what our concept of democracy actually is. Yeah, on that, you've mentioned socialism, democracy, you know, people's voting power. So 
what we're essentially discussing here is previous Marxist conceptions of, you could say, the Vanguard Party, you could say the mass line being implemented in Cuba's you know, native circumstances. This is what I'd say the mass line looks like in Cuba, where people are coming up to being asked what what's good, what's bad, what have you got to say about this? It's being analysed, you know, over, you know, nearly 200,000 meetings, you know, was this in, in just a year, was it, Ria, or... Do you know? I was in just a few months. That was in um, oh, three or four months. <laughs> Damn. Okay, Ryan, if, if, I think you'd be a lot more qualified for this. Do you think that you could just help explain what the previous conception of, of a mass line looks like in, in history? Um, yeah, so the mass line generally is a, is a Maoist idea, right? It just comes from um, an actual group, uh, an actual real um, grassroots organization uh that yeah again it comes out of um, the, the chinese revolution right um and it, it's basically a, a methodology that encompasses like philosophical strategic and uh, tactical leadership um in order to achieve a, a, a common goal and um they talk a lot about being the, the correct mass line right and that's talking very specifically about sort of uh rooting out um opportunism or, or revisionism and actually being on the correct lines to uh, actually achieve the, the, the stated goal. Awesome. And and the stated goal is, of course, communism. It's a revolutionary struggle. And we have to talk about these things, listen and hear everybody in order to go to a position where it's not being run by some tyrants. It is actually being led by the people. There could, of course, be better ways of doing this. Maybe if... Cuba wasn't under, you know, the thumb of US imperialism and had the embargoes and blockades against his country, you know, they could be a lot more technologically advanced, they could have, you know, the smartphones, you know, more, te- you know, in- electronic information technology on hand to even improve this concept of the CDR even further and make it a lot more efficient. Just imagine what the Soviet Union would have looked like, you know, back in the day with the technology that that we have today. They had to send letters from one person, one peasant from one, one end of the country to another. It could take months or years for their voice to be heard. So that got in the way of democracy but these things can be eliminated with technology and again this is why we must support the ending of of the embargo against cuba because it's not about giving them technology and giving them smartphones it's literally about giving them the technology in order to allow them to empower themselves to make more informed decisions as a society and really advance in every single sense that they possibly can yeah, I mean, technology is also one of those things that people don't understand has a very dominant class element, right? Uh, when you look at how technology is being used within the, you know, the global north, right? Um, it's what, what I was talking about earlier. It's it's ushering this era of um, surveillance capitalism, right? Like our technology originally started as being hailed as a way for people to communicate, but it very quickly became a means for capitalists to sell us products, to advertise to us, and eventually to surveil us, right? So technology is not class neutral, right? There's nothing within society that's class neutral. Any new um, technology or implementation of anything while society is owned by the bourgeois is going to benefit the bourgeois in some way or another. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, also, yeah, do you know what should be what you were saying before about um, like what Cuba's managed to achieve and what more it could achieve? Dr. Helen Yaffe in her latest book, We Are Cuba, it actually ends by saying, um, what could the revolutionary, do you know, after like summarizing the incredible outstanding achievements of the revolution, despite the blockade, despite the years of imperialist domination and underdevelopment, um, what could the revolutionary people of Cuba achieve if they were just left in peace and if they were given, finally given the chance to prosper and not just survive, which I think is just a lovely quote that sums it up. Yeah, and most definitely, again, the Soviet Union would literally still exist today if it wasn't being attacked from the outside, if there wasn't a Cold War that threatened to absolutely decimate them with nuclear weapons and even threatened to destroy the entire fucking planet with nuclear weapons simply because they were spreading what was the end of slavery, wage slavery and imperialist exploitation. Just, just by the way, I mean, just, just to bring some more out of this, and I mentioned this as pretty much at the start. In fact, was it? No, this is actually on a pilot episode. It's not even released, but this was... I think it was a Fuck the Tories match. It was on a pilot episode that, that I'd done, but just at the start, I came off the bus, and I basically mentioned, read it like a diary, but at the start, I came off the bus in town, and then, like, I mentioned how I just saw literally, like, four people you know, all in sleeping, all four homeless people in sleeping bags outside the Tesco, uh, you know, in town by Bold Street. And like I just said, Jesus Christ, this is the first thing that I saw in town when I got off the bus. There's four motherfuckers out there on the cold floor, freezing their asses off in the winter. And then I'm going out there to do like a fuck the Tory march. And like I had to just walk past these homeless people in town. Like I couldn't do nothing because I'm, I'm, I'm fucking poor myself. You know, I've got nothing to give them. I can't save them from fucking poverty. And I had to just walk past them feeling like shit being able to do nothing but said at least hopefully like being out there getting my voice heard saying fuck the Tories at least helped bring some just just got people thinking of fuck the Tories I mean, there's also some parallels between that story right and the story that um got Che Guevara to participate in um politics for the first time right I don't know if you know that story about when he was um you know motorbiking around the country and he came across you know loads of people that were in poverty and everything and he kind of concluded that I don't have what I need to help these people like I need real resources real money everything yeah. and that's when he um decided to less focus on being a medic you know he can't do this anymore and uh, eventually um focus more on the uh, political arm struggle yeah it's the story that he tells of um how he came to that realization yeah so people should you can watch uh, or read the motorcycle diaries che Guevara written the motorcycle the motorcycle diaries when he did do that tour around latin america and there's also a film of it both are really good yeah, yeah something that really brings out what you've just said, Ryan, and is also very poetic. Che Guevara says it himself in one of his writings that during a, a battle with Batista's forces, I think somebody went down, and he being a medic at this time because of his experience training to be a doctor, he was forced to make, make the decision in the middle of combat whether he should grab a medic bag or grab this ammo um, whilst he was a gorilla and it, he himself said it was at this moment where 
he had to decide whether he was going to be like a healer or be a gorilla. And just as you've just said, this was another decision where he's decided he can't, he, he hasn't got enough power to do anything about it unless he fights for it. He can't go around literally healing the bandages of the brutal combat and, and war and, you know, the attack from imperialism and, and its forces that are going to defend it. But ultimately, to put an end to it, you need more than plastics, you need more than bandages. You need to put an end to these fucking bastards who you've got to kill to stop them from killing you. So that that's, yeah, two points that re- really just bring out this decision that was in Che's mind. It's the difference between being pre-active, uh, proactive and reactive, right? I mean, the bandages there is being reactive, right? All you're going to do is essentially deal with the fallout that this this economic system is going to give to you or be proactive and actually fight to end that um, fallout ever taking place in the first place. And the guerrillas, yeah. the revolutionaries, were proactive as you could be. They sacrificed their lives. Che Guevara, of course, fought many, many different combats all around the world to fight U.S. imperialism from his time in Africa to when he was executed in Bolivia. So, Ria, another question I'd like to ask you, though, you know, just as I got off that bus in town, did you get off the plane and see, you know, homeless people lying about, you know, what... What were some of your negative experiences over there? Did you see homeless people? What What did some of the, your most negative experiences look like over there? I didn't see any homeless people. Do you know, since you first said, I'm going to ask you negative experiences, I've been thinking, like, what can I say? But I genuinely can't think of a negative experience at all from the brigade because even the challenges that Cuba is facing and, you know, they've had to bring in some market mechanisms um, purely to survive in a capitalist world and um, when they are being blockaded by the the biggest imperialist power in the world so they're trying to balance that opening up the market in some ways balance it against preserving a revolutionary consciousness and but even these all these challenges that Cuba faces they're so honest about what they're going through and how they're gonna approach it and how they're gonna overcome it like it's not it's not something that they hide or cover up or um like freak out about i don't know it's they're just so open with with what they're going through so there were genuinely no negative experiences um from what i saw good so we are moving on we're not gonna take up too much more time now but i'd just like to respond to my own question there on negative experiences I think it was when I was watching I think it was when I was in a Zoom meeting with Nottingham RCG I think it was I was watching a, a video from a Cuban brigade and there was a comrade over there speaking to an older gentleman and she asked the gentleman you know how has the Cuban blockade affected your life and he said well, shit, he was like, I'm diabetic. Like, I struggle to get hold of medicine because it comes from the United States. Like, I could very likely die uh, at any point because of, of my lack of being able to access these medicines that my life depends on. And when we talk about the genocide of the, the blockade and the embargo, this is what we're looking at. 
I don't know whether he's alive right now. He could be dead because of this embargo. You know, this is, you know, a, a practical example of everything we're doing to talk about these goddamn things, to get people to despise the embargo, to speak out against the embargo from their own governments, their own, you know, leaders, their own population. We have to defend and, the, you know, this is why. Wait, Shibi, that actually just... Can I delete my old answer? Because that just reminded me, actually, <laughs> of... Um, of a negative experience so basically while we were there we had this amazing meeting with the economic institution we're learning about how with this having to open up the market a bit more the they've become ever more reliant on tourism and tourism has been a key factor that is bringing them um, much needed money and you know they need money for everything to develop to trade so yeah we just had this incredible meeting and, and learned all about that. And then a couple of days later, the United States announced the intensification of the Cuban blockade, the, the most it has been intensified since it was first brought in, in the 60s. And it was essentially, they, the United States have made the blockade extraterritorial now through the application of what's known as Helms-Burton Title III, uh, so the Helms-Burton Acts were brought in during the special periods uh, and they were they were measures to try and crush the revolution while it was, as they saw, while it was weak. But Title III had always been delayed and never enacted. And what Title III said was that US individuals can sue companies, any company around the world that operates in Cuba, if they can claim that the land that company is operating on was appropriated in the revolution. Um, now that enactment, um, putting through that act, is a complete attack on the Cuban economy, but in particular its tourism industry because it's, um, it's going after like hotel chains and cruise ships and trying to cut off tourism to Cuba or making companies think if they invest at all in the tourism industry in cuba then they could be sued billions by by someone in the united states so yeah that that was a real negative experience because it was like you're surrounded by the solidarity of the cuban people by the love for humanity and you know just they're fighting every day to try and construct socialism and it's so inspiring and empowering and then and you're surrounded by that and then you you hear about the united states attacking more and more and more and trying to break not only the spirit of the Cuban people, but their whole revolution, everything, and, you know, turn them back into um, slaves of imperialism. So, yeah, that was that was the negative experience. Pretty, 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 pretty negative, yeah. There are like a million and one resources people can learn about the you know, history of Cuba, you know, the Cuban blockades, you know, the atrocities against Cuba. And we really hope that people have really learned a lot from, you know, everything you've brought out. And just to show that in the spirit of historical materialism, being, you know, open and honest and, you know, a really grounded, realistic analysis and not something that we're just all brainwashed communist and whatnot that's why we have to look at the negative experiences we have to look at the contradictions to see where you, you know the dialectic is to see you know what materials we we have to 
to change what's the ide- ideology looking like on both sides so that we can actually identify different phenomena and then once we've identified these different phenomena these forces that drive history and you know make societies as they are today well once we've identified that phenomenon we can change it it empowers us it, it gives us the power to turn you know our understanding into a force that we can plan and organize around and then change society into a different goddamn way so this is why we have to you know constantly come back to the the embargo it's because everything's goddamn affected by it. It's that, that monumentally, you know, life-changing for everybody. Just to look at it again scientifically is to see to see what's good and what's wrong, to look at it both sides, to be unbiased. I'd like to just look at an example of something negative I've learnt about that happened in Cuba, and that was an instance where... They really struggled to get food. I can't remember what year it was, but they struggled to trade for food. You know, they couldn't grow enough food. The people were, were so hungry. There was actually a, a really long period of time where there was a, a, an illegal black market in Cuba where people would trade, uh, what was it? I think it was like like roasted nuts. I don't know if you know anything about this here, but people would trade like roasted nuts, you know, very cheap to each other because there just wasn't any other kind of food going. And of course, the way the Cuban economy is focused, this was not controlled or regulated by the government. So that's why it was illegal. But for a very long time, the Cuban government, the police, knew about this illegal trade for, for you know, fucking nuts. They, they knew about it, but they didn't really enforce putting an end to it. What we're looking at here, to me, is kind of the the lumpen proletariat in Cuba, where people are making um, a living outside of the e- economy that's legal. Um, well, it's, it's crime, it's organised crime. That to me is, you know, basically a different kind of class, and and socialism towards moving towards communism, is the process of eliminating class structured society. So when you've got this contradiction arising, this phenomena of of illegal trade, the the lumpen class emerging, well, in a socialist society aims to put an end to class structures so they don't simply arrest all of these technically criminals who are trading nuts illegally. What they do is they kind of legalise this trading so it basically puts an end to this this rising class who are making uh, money illegally and then it, it makes it legal, it makes it in a way that can be I don't know. I don't know whether it was taxed or just regulated, and it, it's very different to how to how these things would would be dealt with in the UK. For example, when we see the lump and politeria, we see like weed, we see drugs, and we see all these things being traded illegally, unregulated, and everybody just gets thrown into jail. And capitalism doesn't want to put an end to different classes. It wants to maintain them. That's why the lumpen's always going to be there. That That's why crime's always going to be there because they never try and address the root causes. They simply just want to maintain the, the, the class structure society 
as it is i don't know whether that makes any sense to you but to me it was just really important to look at how cuba dealt with this emerging different class that was being lifted up through an, an illegal economy and how rather than attacking it um, they, they tried to support it, they tried to eliminate the root causes, the material conditions in which caused this class to arise and that to me is really just a, a great example of socialism moving to communism and then putting an end to you know, a class structure society, various classes in, in the process of everybody being the same class um, and people not, not being forced to you know crime or, or things like that because they've got a society that looks after them and cares for them and, and provides for them in which they can uh, participate in well that's related to the issue i'm you know i'm always talking about right which is that the law isn't a function isn't isn't a uh, matter of justice it's a matter of power right it's like under under a bourgeois legal system, you're never going to have any such thing as justice, right? It just doesn't exist when you have the law being a function of the bourgeois in a bourgeois class society. You're not going to get the law um, dealing justice because the law actually isn't a matter of justice. The law is a matter of power, right? Those that have the power write the rules, and that's essentially what law is. That's why we have bourgeois legal systems. We don't have proletarian legal systems. Also, yeah, do you know on, I mean, I don't know anything about the development of a lumpen proletariat in Cuba, but the the whole thing of how they deal with problems is exactly the way that you say in terms of they don't ban things and censor things. They go to the root of the problem and try and resolve it. And another example is um, during the special period. Um, well, during the special period, like people, housing was still... Um, no one was was made homeless. No one would go um, completely without food. But there was obviously um, difficulties in accessing certain things. And some women turned to prostitution during that time as a way to try and make more money. And you know, when you look at how um, people who undertake sex work in Britain are treated and criminalised, and then you compare it to what happened in Cuba, where um, the FMC, the women's organization that was set up by the revolutionary hero Vilma Espin, um, who was a hero of um, the July 26 movement as well. They went and visited all these women and offered them employment or education opportunities to try and take them out of the situation rather than, you know, punishing or criminalizing them. And similarly... Um, you know, Asata Shakur said, like, a revolution isn't a magic wand. You don't just magic it and get rid of all the problems. And when you've had years of um, of structural racism and sexism and homophobia, a, a lot of which, which was, well, which was brought over by imperialists and the value of the colonialists and their religions and then ingrained in these societies, they don't just go away. So... You know, there are instances in which um, sexism would exist, not on a state level or in an institutional level, but on individual basis. And one example that the FMC gave us as well was how um, there's some music videos that objectify women. And rather than ban these videos or censor them, instead they launched a whole media campaign about, I think it was basically women objectifying men. And I can't remember what the campaign was, but it was this mass campaign to try and raise consciousness around the subject 
which is how they deal with these problems by trying to educate people and talk through the problems and discuss them and change people's minds rather than just um, censoring them. Yeah, I mean, this was another issue that Mao identified, right? I mean, this was the whole point of the Cultural Revolution, right? Because you can change the base of a society, you can change the fundamental economic system and structures, but you have to have a population that is able to make use of those things and understand why we're doing this and what the implications of this are. You know, you can you can give people... I don't know, some kind of analogy. If you can you can give people a new device, but if they can't use it, then they're not gonna be able to use it, right? They, they have no use for it. So you can give a population, you know, uh, serious socialist reforms. But if they're not able to make use of them and understand them, then it's actually it's actually no good. Um that was the point of the Cultural Revolution, right? So actually uh, engage the the people in what's happening here, and for them to make use of the reforms um, that are coming. Because there's no, you're, you're, there's there's it's no good to have a population with a bourgeois mind state trying to you know look upon proletarian revol uh, forms and make use of them in any meaningful way. Good stuff. Thank thank you both, Ryan. Yeah, law is of course there to maintain the state as it exists today the state um, uh, by definition is an unmoving <laughs> thing it is one state of things it's not it, it, it's it's not a dialectic it's just something that's still you know what i'm saying so yeah the lord's there to just keep everything the same basically that benefits the bourgeois state Rhea, boss um you clearly know something about the lump of proletariat because all that information there about you know female prostitution its background how it's being worked on is is definitely really interesting new information for me um something other people should go away from because again it's just an awesome example of of how these things are, are, are worked out differently as a society for example over here to, to cuba and how these things are dealt with for the benefit of, of the people to put an end to the the conditions to force people into you know these desperate situations and rather than empower them them to you know pursue with their lives so we are moving on towards the end now but before we do finish up well i'd love to if you could just give us something that we should all take away from this episode something that you might think everybody needs to go away with and, and remember from this interview so that could be something like you know points that we must remember about cuba reasons for solidarity reasons to support you know rock around the blockade or just simply clear up any misunderstandings that people might have you know is there anything of that nature that you could give us before we finish up yeah well i think it's important that we say how cuba and the revolutionary cuban people stand in solidarity with the international working class like they see that their fight against capitalism and against imperialism and their solidarity with humanity with the working class is global it's it is international and this is so evident if you just look at what is happening in the world right now. Um, even before the coronavirus outbreak, there were tens of thousands of Cuban healthcare professionals serving in 59, yeah, 59 countries um, around the world. And most of, most of those were completely for free, the Cuban government providing those services for free. But then after the COVID-19 outbreak, they have sent a further 26 specialized brigades um, 
and thousands more healthcare workers to assist all over the world, um, you know, including in Italy, this advanced capitalist country that's had to rely on the support of this tiny, historically underdeveloped, blockaded island on the other side of the world. Um, but Cuba has always supported revolutionary struggles from fighting alongside the Angolans against racist apartheid in the 70s and 80s, um, accepting political exiles, including the exiled Black Panther Party member from the US, Asata Shakur. So yeah, just as Cuba provides solidarity for the world, the world needs to give political solidarity to Cuba. And that means fighting for socialism here, fighting for a world that's free of poverty, free of war and racism and environmental destruction. But to do that, we need to be organized. We need to get organized. So yeah, let's get organized. <laughs> um, I wanted to say as well, I don't know when this episode is going to be aired, but on Saturday in Liverpool, there is a, a march in support of Black Lives Matter. Um, it's going to be meeting at 1pm at Rialto, I think that's how you say it, in L8, and then marching down to St. George's Hall. So if this episode airs before then, and if uh, people are in Liverpool, you can find us at that at that protest. Um, I mean, it's so important that people come out for this and, and take a stand against the racism in Britain. Awesome. Good stuff. Boss point to finish up there, but in fact, I'm just going to keep you one more second to ask you one, one more question. It just, it just boggles my mind. How is there so many doctors going abroad? Like, surely all of the all of the students like must be quite rich to pay for all the university fees to become doctors. In Cuba. Yeah, I'm asking sarcastically for the, for the audience. Yeah, they've got um, free education in Cuba all the way for... For as much as you want to be educated, PhDs, masters, university, and because it, they have such an open um, education system, people they have the highest number of doctors per capita, which means that then when uh, situations of disaster arise around the world, um, the Cuban doctors are always first on the scene to be there, um, aiding and helping. So yeah, it's, uh, do you know what's incredible as well? Um, sorry, I know I keep mentioning <laughs> Helen Yaffe, yeah, but in her book, We Are Cuba, there's this incredible chapter on Cuba's medical internationalism. And it gives an example of this young doctor, Cuban doctor, who was serving in Kashmir after the earthquake. And she, returning from the mission, she said that the experience only made her more revolutionary um, because she understood that what, the life-saving work that was being undertaken there um just as the same as the under the life-saving work that's being undertaken right now in for, by the cuban doctors in relation to coronavirus that is only possible because of socialism not only because of the socialist system that prioritizes healthcare and education at home but because of the international solidarity and the international fight against capitalism and imperialism Damn, I mean, to me, that's why I asked that question, because to me, education is like, I, I mean, that's one of the things that I really admire so much about the revolution is the capacity for education. Now, me, myself, I, what, for, uh, like, I, I probably missed in school, yeah. 
the whole of year eight, the whole of year nine, and then I went back into school halfway through year ten. It was like I was doing free running all this shit. I swear to God, like, that's literally, uh, like, I've proper lacked education. And even when I say I went through halfway through year 10, like, I was probably in, like, a unit for, like, half of a day for, like, a few months to try and to try and flipping ease me back into school because they thought that I was flipping depressed and like school was just simply too much for for my peasant mind but no it was just yeah I'm going into a building with fucking spikes all around the thing it looks like a goddamn prison and you know like there was there was a time where like I remember in like year seven or something we were doing like a practical experiment in science and like some of the kids were obviously just like pissing about with the bunsen burners or like they, would, they wouldn't shut up and like the science teacher in like year seven would in fact was it year seven year seven or it must have been like the science teacher that we had just basically said right fuck it because we were like put you know the way because people are put into like different classes depending on like how smart they are like some people being like set one set two set three well i was obviously in the bottom set um i don't know they probably looked at me as as some poor kid and then just put me in in that because i was always i was always bright i always loved science like i like um, you know i I was always interested in that shit me granddad like i love science fiction so like i was always fascinated by by the world and biology and, and life and space and all that shit but the science teacher turned around and said right fuck you you're never doing a practical experiment ever again so like even when i went back into school like halfway through year 10 i mean to that day we could not do practical experiments so there was all these kids getting to fucking dissect frogs and piss around with messing all chemicals around getting all like you, you know different chemical reactions and like i was just like just excluded from that because he just decided fuck it you're like bad kids so uh, again, I'm somebody who loves education and, and would have loved to have, have gone through to get like a higher education through through like university and all that. But school was just like just some place that I saw as like as cultural hegemony. Just like the only reason it existed was to get me to sit down, shut up and listen. You know what I'm saying? And that's exactly what it is. Well, that's how it was perceived. I mean, yeah, I mean, the education system as it's currently constructed is literally born out of the Industrial Revolution, right? Like, it exists to turn people into effective workers for the capitalist machine, right? It's not there to, like, foster creation or innovation. I mean, it's literally there to train people to, you know, go to the factories and work, right? You have the ability to read and write. You can do basic maths. You know a little bit about selective parts of history or geography or whatever. And uh, that's the function it serves within society. And, you know, when you compare, one of the other things that actually touched me so much about the Brigade to Cuba was all the meeting with the youths and the way that young people were treated there. Like, we went to youth centres and schools and special education schools and, like, got a real understanding of how valued young people are in Cuba and how many opportunities they are given, how supported they are. Um, and how there is equal opportunity for all children and young people, irrespective of their wealth. So, so different to what, what we experience here and especially what you experienced, Shibi. Wow. Yeah, boss. It was so, so goddamn true. And the reason I went off on, on a tangent, if that's the right word, I probably know the right word, but 
I, I was so <laughs> neglected from education because of the reasons you said I did not feel that value in school. It was kind of, you know, you're just a goddamn student, just I'm just a teacher yeah, trying yeah. to make a goddamn living, make my day as easy as possible. Um, I'm just an individual, but if I'd have felt that that value as a society where the society was, was there to support me so that I knew I could, I could cherish and hone my creative skills, intellectual skills, and then go to university somewhere which obviously seemed like somewhere unreachable to me because you know nobody in my family is like immediately I'd been to university it's it is something that you see generally in like middle classes because they've got a lot of financial support and I mean they've generally got better lives and they've got the time to and, and support from parents who've generally been to university themselves to enable this this kind of development and you know I was I was not in that situation that that's why you know obviously the the poor as kids in society you know you're fighting a goddamn uphill struggle so yeah really good points um, I hope that other people haven't got that experience but I bet you that they have if, if it's in the UK and again solidarity to, to the Cuban people I think that that's that's a good p- place to pretty much finish on is there any more points or anything else um, other people would like to throw in before we just sign off no, other than to say thank you for having me on here. We massively appreciate it. Me and Ryan, Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. Hopefully our listeners are going to find this really interesting and, you know, gives them something to think about, go away with and maybe debate with other people in support for for the Cuban Revolution, which, again, we have to support. Everything that we have mentioned, you know, we're talking about Helen's books. I'll even link on the Rev Left episode where... I heard that about, you know, the, the goddamn peanuts. Everything will be linked on to the show notes so people can find these resources and explore them further. If you don't know much about Cuba, definitely go and learn more about Cuba. Read Che and Fidel. Just look at documentaries, watch your chain move. There's so many things out there. We've got, sorry to interrupt, we've actually got Rock Around the Blockade, two documentaries uh, on Cuba, which you could find on our YouTube one from last year's brigade and one from I think 10 years ago so that's a good starting point definitely will be at the top of the list we'll add in Rock Around the Black Decades documentaries I've seen them again so valuable in information and rich and it really allows us to go away and debunk some of the arguments that you might have with people sticking up for for keyboard online from all the goddamn propaganda that they've got all the lives or even just defending you know uh, when you're out in the open debating it with your family your friends anything like that so before we go, Ria, could you just leave us with some information where people could maybe find you if you want to be reached, all the organisations you're involved in, where people can find them to give them support, things like, you know, Twitter, website, any organisations that people can go and find, follow and give support to? Yeah, so um, you can find Rock Around the Book Aid at um, ratb.org.uk or on Facebook. And uh, the documentaries and other videos relating to Cuba, um, you can find on YouTube on our page called Cuba Vive. Um, We actually just did a short, I don't know if you can call it a film, it's like 10 minutes, but um, on Cuba and environmental sustainability. So the YouTube channel just has a lot more, um, a a lot of videos aside from the brigade videos. Then if you want to find 
at um, the Revolutionary Communist Group, we have a website which is revolutionarycommunist.org. And we're also on Facebook as well. If you just search for RCG Revolutionary Communist Group, if you wanted to get in touch with me personally or this branch, then we can be found again on Facebook. If you just search Liverpool Fight Racism, Fight Imperialism, you'll find us there. And if you drop us a message, then we can get in touch and talk further. Good stuff. Thank you so much, Ria. And before we do actually go, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter protest in Liverpool on Saturday, the 13th of June. Hopefully there will be more. It, like, it, I was actually quite shocked how last week, last weekend, there weren't any that happened in Liverpool when all the major cities had that. Even bloody like Chester had one. Like, how can Chester have one and not Liverpool? But I mean, in London, they've been happening pretty much daily. So hopefully the momentum keeps up and there will be a lot more in Liverpool and um, at a time when you can come as well. Yeah, in, in Nottingham, absolutely massive. So just to reiterate, we'll, we'll add all the places to reach you and the organisation, but if, if anybody elsewhere in the UK wants to get involved in everything that's going on politically, do reach out to your local RCG, you know, just tell them, you know, your story you want to get involved in. I'm sure that they'll, they'll link you up and then you can be involved in, you know, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's environmentalism, you know, pretty much got fingers in, in all kind of pies here because we have to to bring those fingers together and make a goddamn fist to fight the goddamn capitalist imperialist all around the world one struggle one struggle one life so make the most of it god it's not about us as individuals it's about us as a species so on that note is the anything else and anything final and then we'll go yeah, sorry, I know like you keep trying to end it and then there's always like a but, but, but. Um, but yeah, I just but. wanted to say, do you know where you were saying people can get involved with their local branches of the RCG? If you go to the RCG website, it's got a list of um, the branches around the country in which we're active. So uh, if you go to the website, find the one that's closest to you and get in touch with them that way, that would be great. Good stuff. Another way to help out if there's nobody local nearby share this podcast share all that media that you can find support us at revolutionary lump and radio support you know all these comrades you know we, we do have a patreon if you want to help support this show materially patreon.com slash lump and radio but besides that we'd love just some rating on itunes you know five stars only um i'm sensitive I'll, I'll probably get upset if i get anything less than that because it really helps us get a reach out in this proletarian struggle is what you deserve, the five stars. <laughs> uh, thanks. Um, I deserve five stars because all our guests deserve five stars. Ryan deserves five stars. If you do want to go and learn some theory that's being discussed, Ryan's channel is an excellent place to find that. The Zen Marxist does all kinds of theory, does all kinds of you know philosophy. So that's us, a, a revolutionary lump of radio. That's the RCG. That's Rock Around the Blockade. You know, follow them, share it help support and most importantly try and get involved in you know local revolutionary struggle more than that solidarity workers and lumpen of the world unite el silencio del monte va preparando a dios la palabra que se dirá 
memoria en seré la explosión se perdió el hombre de este siglo allí su nombre y su apellido son fusil contra fusil se quebró la cáscara del viento al sur y sobre la primera cruz despierta la verdad Fusil, fusil contra fusil.